0: Good afternoon and welcome to the 195th of the COVID Calls, this is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles, I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. I want to wish everyone a happy new year and welcome you to the first COVID Calls of 2021, the new year. Today, we have a discussion of parents and children in the pandemic, and I'm speaking with my father, Steve Knowles. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As of today, January 4th, 2021, there are 1,849,206 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 20,748,806 cases reported in the United States. On December 23rd, there were 324,905 deaths in the United States. Today, there are 352,645. That means at least 27,740 people have died waiting for a vaccine that exists uh, since I last spoke with you on December 23rd. Just staggering numbers. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Report Finds Fathers Feel Closer to Children During Pandemic. This was published in the Harvard Gazette September 14th by Colleen Walsh. Amid the many tragic implications of the COVID-19 pandemic for individuals and families, recent Harvard research has uncovered one significant, if potentially fleeting, silver lining for fathers and children. Dads across the United States, many of whom now work at home due to coronavirus lockdowns, are feeling closer to their kids. In the first of two online surveys conducted in June by Making Caring Common, an initiative based at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Researchers asked 1,319 American adults, including 284 fathers, about their relationships with their children amid stay-at-home orders. 68% of surveyed fathers reported feeling either closer or much closer to their children since the pandemic began and only 1.4% reported feeling less close. In our first survey, we were trying to understand the nature of relationships during this time and how they're evolving in response to the pandemic, said Richard Weisbord, faculty director from Making Caring Common, who noted the findings were consistent across race, class, educational attainment, and political affiliation. We weren't looking for data about fathers specifically, but the data around fathers turned out to be striking. And we know from other data that a lot of fathers have been less involved than mothers in their kids' lives and many fathers have been emotionally remote. So this trend seemed important. Eager for more insight into their initial findings, Weisbord and his colleagues developed a second set of questions about the interactions fathers were having with their children. The responses to the survey of 1,297 parents, including 534 dads, suggest that fathers have been engaging more with their families during the pandemic in important ways. We found that they're discovering new shared interests. They're appreciating their kids more. They feel appreciated by their kids more. They're talking more about things that are important to them and important to their kids, said board a child and family psychologist and senior lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. They feel like they're understanding their kids' perspectives and feelings better and that their kids understand their perspectives and feelings better, so a lot of encouraging things. One respondent wrote that Quote, staying and working from home has greatly helped in improving my bond with my little girl. It has brought us closer together than before. She freely shares her thoughts with me, what interests her and what she wants from me, unquote. Another dad said he felt, quote, closer to all family because we seem to be communicating more often and on a deeper level, unquote. While another said he has, quote, found things to do with my kids that I might not have done otherwise if life was still normal, unquote. Respondents reported going for walks, playing, and developing new activities and rituals with their children, said Weisbord, who encourages parents to continue. Richard Weisbord and his colleagues developed this set of questions about the interactions fathers were having with their children during the lockdown. Part of what we're trying to underscore in the report is to ensure it doesn't all evaporate once the pandemic is over, that people don't just go back to their regular lives. I think if these activities, which can be important to a child's development, don't become part of routines, they're very likely to vanish. While some of the report's findings are positive, others point to how emotionally challenging the past several months have been, particularly for younger Americans. There are a broad range of experiences, said Weisbord. Some are positive, but some are really tough, including parents who said they had concerns about their kids' mental health. In the surveys, 14% of parents reported the pandemic has been harmful to their children's mental health. Four percent reported very harmful and four three percent reported a little harmful. Those responses echo findings from a June Gallup poll involving emotional challenges faced by children during COVID-19. Moving forward, researchers plan to study the responses further to better understand how families are processing what is going on in the world right now involving the pandemic and the fight for racial justice, said Weisbord. While the most recent work was focused on fathers, the report also notes that parents and families that are widely varying in terms of structure, gender identity, sexual orientation, and many other characteristics may also be more closely involved with children during the pandemic, given that they are more likely to be spending time at home. These variations will be another focus of our work as we continue to study family experiences in these challenging times, said Weisbord. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today. And to start that, I wanna introduce my guests as you usually do, and I'm gonna introduce my father, which is a lot of fun to do. Um, I'm already, I just wanna say on the outset, I, we're having a lot of internet difficulties here today at the studio in my home. So um, if the uh, quality of the broadcast goes down, I might just go into the uh, Audio-only mode. I just want to let everybody know that as we're getting started. But let me introduce um, Steve Knowles, and I'm going to read his bio, which he, which he actually wrote. I'm really pleased he did. Steve Knowles, a fourth-generation Texan, was born and raised in Odessa, Texas, which is the hub of the oil industry in the Permian Basin of West Texas and eastern New Mexico. Steve received his BBA degree in marketing from the University of Texas at Austin and his MBA from the University of Texas at Permian Basin. He earned his professional certificate in human resources management certification. He earned his professional in human resources management certification and was an active member of the Society for Human Resource Management and the American Society for Training and Development. His career was essentially as a human resources professional that included stents with retail, manufacturing, healthcare, oil field services, and banking over 40 plus years. Steve is a past president of the Austin Human Resource Management Association and a past vice chair of the Austin Human Rights Commission. He retired from the Farm Credit Bank of Texas as the vice president of human resources management for this multi billion dollar cooperative banking operation based in Austin, Texas, with offices in Texas, New Mexico, Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. Prior to his retirement, Steve and his wife, Harriet, relocated to the Sun City community inside the city limits of Georgetown, Texas. He has five children, five grandchildren, another one on the way. He plays golf, reads, walks, and stays linked with family and friends throughout this COVID pandemic experience, and he notes he is an avid Texas Longhorns fan. Steve Knowles, thanks for joining me today on COVID Calls.
1: It's great being with you, Scott, as always, and thanks for those kind words. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm uh, I'm talking to you today, as an area you might recognize, and that's in Pop's uh, little room that he goes to when he retreats. I guess it's my man cave here in, in Georgetown. Um, and I think that this is a place that I can get refuge and give thought, and so we're gonna, give some effort this, this afternoon to just sharing some conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Uh, Scott, I think it, it might just enlighten those who are participating on the podcast to know that uh, where I am is in Central Texas, just north of Austin. Uh, it's a area that has about 2 million people. So it is a, a significant uh, metropolitan statistical area. And the town of Georgetown has about 80,000 people and the county from which all of the statistics that I'm gonna share with you, the county is called Williamson County and it has about 600,000 people. And I've been tracking the COVID information just like you've been sharing on all of your podcasts on the COVID calls. And uh, the numbers are not good for this area have continued to decline in terms that we are now in phase five or a RUD category. Uh, And I think this has happened uh, basically because of what some people might anticipate is the festivities of Thanksgiving and Christmas, and maybe just a little bit of overconfidence that the masks were working and that there was some sort of vaccine coming around, that our numbers have actually gotten worse. We have had 20,400 cases reported here in Williamson County. And right now there's a little bit over 1,300 active. Unfortunately, we've we've suffered 203 deaths attributed to COVID-19. And I think what's um, worrisome to a lot of us is that the intensive care unit uh, available beds is down to 12% right now, which means that, um, that is a real barometer of availability for other people who might, uh, come down with this, with this, uh, epidemic. Guess the only thing that continues to be positive is that the recovery rate is 99%, which maybe we'll talk about later, Scott, but fact is that uh, when you live in a community, particularly like Sun City, which is uh, about eighteen thousand people that live in this area, and we're all fifty-five or over, that uh, the recovery rate of ninety-nine percent is really very encouraging. Because you would think that seniors might have a potential of having a higher mortality rate. So the report from central texas is, is worrisome and that the spike continues to go up and probably doesn't even reflect uh, families getting together for christmas and for new year's
0: well that's a a very good and thorough orientation to the to the situation there i i wondered um also, Dad, if you're keeping track of the, of the numbers in other parts of the state. Um, you keep an eye. I mean, I know usually you have a better sense of what the weather forecast is where I live than I do. Um, and I, I imagine you're keeping a similar sort of handle on the COVID-19 situation in other parts of the state. Like West Texas, for example, in Odessa, where you're from, it's been a really tough situation out there
1: very very tough in Midland and Odessa and I don't have the specific uh, specifics that I just shared with you other than I do go online every day to check what's going on in, out in Odessa and frequently I get reports from Midland and the deaths have been continued to coming in of two and three and four a day for an area that that has a total population of about 250,000 so, um, it's, it's worrisome out there also, uh, and I don't know if their trend is going any better than what I, I see here in Central Texas. Hmm. So,
0: I wonder um, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about what it was like celebrating the holidays there, the restrictions that were in place, and the kind of uh, precautions that you had to take there to have any sort of a Christmas and New Year's celebration, and I would point out that ordinarily um, I wouldn't have to ask you such a question because I would have been right there with you uh, to have that experience, but we weren't together this year. So talk a little bit about your holiday experience this year. It's always such a high point of our family year.
1: I don't think it it will surprise anyone, and and I'm sure I'm like many other grandparents out there, that the holidays were very challenging to us because We are a family that really likes to get together. um, The five children, spouses, grandchildren getting in here and coming into the house and celebrating. And the louder the house gets, the more fun it is. Uh, And this year, it was quite different. I was talking with Harriet earlier that typically we like to... Christmas a very festive and family time and this year I can only have one word and that is subdued. It just simply was quiet Um, and the idea of of them not being here in person to hug and kiss and laugh with and um, overeat with was was great. Uh, I think that the idea of thank goodness, technology of FaceTime and Facebook, lesser. But uh, Zoom are lifesavers for us to get together and spend time. And so uh, that helped quite a bit. I think that we even have to go back, Scott, to include in the holidays, Thanksgiving, because that likewise was a, a time that, certainly here in in Central Texas and probably the rest of the state, we are in that pretty much a a time of stay away, stay home, stay safe. But um, there were a few exceptions that you're aware of that, fortunately, because your siblings quarantined themselves in advance and we had an environment that uh, we tried to establish here that your sister, Jen, her husband, daniel and my grandson uh, donovan came out for thanksgiving and that was splendid and then for christmas we had um, your your sister lindy and her husband weston and grandson jack stephen and then we had your sister stephanie and her husband uh, jason and stephanie is the one that is expecting right now so that was probably the best Christmas gift I could receive. And we also had Harriet's brother Ray and sister Suzanne come and join us for Christmas. But what we did was even in our house, we socially distanced and we all wore masks. Some of them may have sat outside because the weather is still very temperate here in, in Georgetown and so somebody outside and at different tables. Uh, but we missed that fun that we usually have of opening presents and uh, games and so I would say that uh, 2020 couldn't couldn't end soon enough. Uh, mm-hmm. New Year's celebrations we had Scott uh, with the Zoom family was the highlight of the evening when we, when we all got together but uh, I think our house probably equaled to what was going on in Times Square, which was nothing. <clears throat> there was just nothing in, so for New Year's, our celebration was black eyed peas and cornbread, and uh, simply just wished in the new year. Uh, one thing I'll share with you, Scott, that I think other grandparents do when, when they're expecting family to come is that they really prepare the homes as much as possible. And I want to make sure that that Gabriel and Mercer know that the Clark Griswold um, tradition of over-illuminating my yard and my shrubs continued. And even though they weren't here with us, uh, they were in spirit. And I I think it was helpful for the whole community that there was just as many lights up this year throughout the neighborhood as you've seen them before. And so people were trying to bring in that spirit of Christmas to acknowledge the birth of Christ. But uh, likewise, when it got from the illumination outside to the houses, the houses were very, very quiet. Uh,
0: so, for those who don't know the reference, it's to the it's to the National Lampoon's uh, Christmas Vacation. And, and you owe it to yourself to check that out, particularly Clark Griswold's commitment to exterior illumination. Um, and in fact, I would not be the first person to note a passing uh, likeness between Chevy Chase and and my dad. So it's pretty poignant when he goes out and and hangs the lights. I just want to put that there as a, as a finder for people who, who may uh, may not know that film. You're going to want to check it out. Um, But just back to something you were talking about, Dak, because I guess I hadn't thought of it quite this way before, but it is right that by Christmas, we we have been so habituated to the distance that I really was looking forward to the Zoom call. Uh, The idea of feeling that that was a secondary form of gathering, uh, I think nobody had to say that. But Mm -hmm. it... It really was still very valuable, I thought, and, and has been throughout the year for us. I mean, as the years gone on, we've gotten more used to having these these Zoom calls, and I guess I hadn't thought about how used to it I'd become until you just described it as the high point of the of the day.
1: You know, since the middle of March, when we all went into our our little cubby holes and tried to. Take care of ourselves. Uh, we lost that that intimacy of family, and that that meant, it simply to be able to, to be with each other. So by the time Thanksgiving and Christmas, New Year's came. You're right, Scott. We were pretty much already used to the to the new norm of communicating through electronic means and um, enjoying and loving and laughing as much as we could, when in fact we couldn't be there to pinch each other we certainly could still uh do the 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 pops handshake and all those other things that we do that are fun so um you're right in your observation
0: well let's get the um we have a lot to talk about today and 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 uh, i should have said also I've really been looking forward to this, and the 150th COVID calls episode. As you know, I did with um, almost all of my brothers and sisters, and that was really that was really quite something to have that have that discussion. So I've been looking forward to this a lot. And you know, we've kept we have a normal standing call, and we see each other even in the Zoom space uh, a fair amount. But if you don't mind, I'd still like you to reflect a little bit on the experience of the year and start by talking about how you first became aware of the pandemic. When did it first enter your consciousness and talk about that experience in Texas, central Texas of what your sort of first steps were to meet the pandemic. How did it change your lifestyle, February, March, April?
1: i probably a light adapter to even acknowledging COVID-19, you were already ahead of me and talking to the family, encouraging us to be careful back with your first uh, episode one of the COVID calls in, in March 16th, I believe it was, Scott. But if you, if you look back to the first of 2020, subconsciously I was hearing news, but not necessarily assimilating it, that it was a concern to me. I... Uh, happened to be checking the New York Times today. And I I like to read just some of their headlines and stories. And today they were citing a link to uh, Helen Branswell who writes for uh, Stat News. And she had written an article one year ago on January the 4th, 2020. And I have to read it, Scott, because it's a long uh, title. But her title of her article was Experts search for answers and limited information about mystery pneumonia outbreak in China. And that was the first time that we were starting to even see and and people were writing about it. And about that time was our first case in San Francisco of COVID-19, or the coronavirus, or as uh, President Trump wanted, wanted to call it, the Wuhan virus. But um, I think that our lives certainly uh, were not Pollyanna, but we, we certainly kept on with our activities. Harriet and I were making trips to Paris, Texas to check on Harriet's father, Garland, and our mother, June, during that. So we were taking trips about 500 miles up to Paris, Texas to check on them, traveling, not thinking too much about our surroundings. Harry and I even took a marriage retreat to a place called Laity Lodge, which is somewhere in the area around San Antonio. And then to continue my own tradition with my friends from Odessa, we flew to Sun Valley, Idaho for a ski trip. And so we were in the airports, we are in airplanes, we were uh, in restaurants and the thing of a mask was not something that was even comprehended. And so life was going on quite well until middle of March when um, the restrictions really started of stay home, stay safe. We were only in a phase one at that time in Central Texas. And uh, I don't think there was a whole lot of really acknowledgement of that concern of something called uh, COVID-19. In fact, Scott, I, I was sharing with you while I was on the Sun Valley trip that we were more involved with the, the Democratic presidential debates and uh, talking about uh, that, that group of 12 or 13 or 14 people who were yelling at each other, <laughs> uh, that that was more important to us than even having knowledge of that there was a COVID-19 going on all the time but like a good old fashioned slap in the face there in the middle of March, reality hit and the great shortage of toilet paper began and the raids on anything in the stores to clean it all out because we were basically told to stay home, but we still had to go get food and, and other vital supplies. And, I'd be less than honest to tell you, Scott, that that point, since I knew so little about the really seriousness of COVID-19, other than what little I'd read and what you were sharing, was that, hey, this is like the other epidemics that I've seen in my life. They'll go away. And probably by the first of June, we're back to normal. We're back to, to doing everything we want to do. And so it wasn't something that was taken as seriously because it was not impacting us personally at that point.
0: Uh, let me ask you about that because, um, you know, you grew up in the 50s and um, there were still epidemics of particularly childhood disease. I mean, what were your reference points growing up that you, just as you said, I thought that was really interesting. You know, your experience with it was, yeah, these kinds of things will happen, but they will pass. And certainly this isn't something that will dominate our our lives for months on end. I, I don't think you're alone in having that feeling, but what was it in, what were you referring back to? What do you think about your childhood when you think about these kinds of disasters or epidemics.
1: Certainly. I was uh, in that early group that recognized that polio was an incredibly serious epidemic. And I was in elementary school and um, I certainly know, know the history of Jonas Salk, other than thank goodness for him that we were able to get, immunizations for polio back in the mid 50s. There were four courses to that. The first two were actually shots and the second two were um, basically sugar cubes. And thank goodness polio basically almost went away. We've had a little bit of an outbreak and I think even that's now been contained again. But polio was the first real epidemic that i got to experience but i didn't know anybody that was impacted by it now childhood diseases that sometimes were into minor i guess uh, epidemics of rubella the red uh red measles chickenpox. pox all those things are naturally come and go but um it's amazing scott that the cycle of pandemics and um issues that are really truthfully life and death around the world continue to happen on a relatively regular basis uh when i was doing some very minor research for one of the articles i wrote for your boys i found that and i'll go back to refresh myself but from the time in the 50s I came across about 10 other pandemics that had happened, were happening around the world, but none of them, again, necessarily landed on my door. And so therefore, it was not as important as it was to the people who got touched by the Asian flu or the cholera epidemic, the Hong Kong flu. Uh, And certainly in the 80s, even till today, we're, we're still confronting Uh, with a lot of love and compassion those people that are impacted by HIV and AIDS virus but um, even as as recent as 2014-2016 the Ebola pandemic goes on Scott in in your role as a disaster expert you know that there were many more of these pandemics even in our contemporary lifetime not to consider those those things that ravaged Europe back in the Middle Ages. So thank yeah. goodness for Jonas Salk.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. And it's, at the same time, you're part of a population uh, through COVID 19 that has been, um, there have been disproportionate suffering from this disease. It's cut along different lines. Um, it's impacted African American communities, indigenous communities, but it's impacted older Americans, starting with nursing homes. Um, and we still don't know as much as we would like to about those impacts and and what that reflects. But you live in a community of, uh, retired age, not all retired age, but older. Americans. It's not a nursing home community. It's not a assisted living community, but it's a retirement-oriented community, older than average age. So there's that to begin with. Um, and you are in your retirement. So I, w- I want to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, it must have been, I think, scary to know from the beginning that you were part of a population that seemed to be getting this at a higher percentage and suffering and dying at higher rates from it. Did that Was that the kind of conversation you were having with neighbors there in Georgetown? The kind of conversation you were having at home? Or did you put that out of your mind? I don't remember talking with you about that throughout the year, really.
1: Uh, there was an active conversation about that, Scott, because you hit the nail on the head that this community uh, is an active lifestyle community with people uh, out playing golf. Just a few minutes ago, I looked out the one and the people were come around playing golf and tennis, swimming, paddleball, hiking, uh, and many, many uh, activities are going on. And so really, while you have to say that retirees and seniors here still have their, their litany of health issues because we are aging, there's no doubt about that. Most everybody was in pretty good shape or still is in pretty good shape. And uh, I don't think that they were necessarily putting their head in the sand, but I think that uh, people just were not dwelling on that as much. And in fact, even in compliance with restrictions that are encouraged, when I go on walks, I wear my mask, um, I take my mask with me and I would say only about half of the people doing walks wear a mask. Well you could argue that since we're out in the in the air and we're socially distanced that it's safe. I wear my mask basically to protect myself against the worst thing that ever can happen at this time of the year and that's cedar fever, in other words the pollen that's coming from the juniper trees which makes everybody miserable, their eyes water. Uh, so, uh, Scott, I think that realistically, it's the seniors who have had to go into, for different reasons, and maybe it's just a, an advanced age. from the people that live around me, is those who have to go into assisted living and nursing homes that have more of a, a real uh, genuine concern about living in those environments.
0: Yeah. Um, I just want to stay with this for a minute because you have, throughout the year, it was necessary for you to, as you said, to travel, even during times in which that was not advised. Can you talk a little bit about um, the experience this year of, uh having june chapman your mother-in-law and my grandmother uh move to your home your trips back and forth to paris texas can you say a little bit about what that's been like
1: we experienced uh, a sad time when we lost garland back in march 28th of 2020 uh but most beloved father-in-law, grandfather, husband for sure, of 70 years to June. Uh, but we knew that at some point, Garland was gonna pass from this earthly plane to heaven. And we had been planning for what could we do to help June out uh, to make her into a safe environment, which became even more so as the COVID virus started really fanning up and we looked at assisted living independent living um, she's not ready for a nursing home and uh, did all that early research but then the reality was that when garland passed um, we needed to do something to get june to here to uh, to georgetown and decided the best decision was for her to move in with us. But that transporting of going and traveling in times when there already was a requested restriction not to be traveling, we had to do that. And even the simple things like trying to stop for restroom break or for food was a challenge of finding a place that was open or that we could get even takeout. Uh, there's many, many people who've been impacted by the experience that we had with the Chapman family there in Paris, is that there were limitations on how people could even come to Garland's funeral. He was a most beloved person, an admired person, an educator from Midland who had been raised there in the Paris area. And we could only have 12 people in this outdoor atrium they could attend. So the rest of the people had to sit in their cars outside. Uh, and it was it was just simply fitting for them to be there, but it was a challenge for us to properly pay our respects to Garland. And um, I recall talking to you, Scott, and saying that I was a little bit nervous on what could I say that would be appropriate to express our concern and our love for Garland. And you said, Dad, just just talk to him like you always do. And that put me at ease to basically say the words that came from my heart. So this challenge, Scott, if I can carry this a little bit further, when we came back here to our home, we dedicated two bedrooms and a bathroom for June so that she can at least feel like she has some space of her own. And so she has a, a bedroom, she has another room that we've converted for where she can watch TV. Our biggest challenge right now, Scott, is quite frankly, is find a TV channel that can get the Dallas Mavericks so that June can continue to watch her favorite basketball. thing. my Christmas gift to her was to try to still connect east texas and sent in that part of texas by giving her the dallas morning news sunday newspaper every sunday uh so she could have something to read uh but there are times even with with these challenges of trying to, to bring a person who's uh, older but still active uh is that she still needs her own her own space and so we were try to respect that Uh, But that's added to a challenge of people coming over here, because we certainly do not want to create any type of a situation that would jeopardize her in any way. And I bet you anything that people who are sharing this time with you today on this podcast, that they have parent, grandparent situations, just like what I've described to you.
0: just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls and it's the first COVID calls discussion of the new year, 2021. I'm talking with my father today, Steve Knowles about his experience of the pandemic this year. And, um, dad, just to follow up a little bit more about that about June. Um, and I'm glad you were able to speak at the funeral. And that's an experience that people have shared a lot this year. Uh, something that's it's the coping mechanisms that people have the normal ceremonies like a funeral opportunity to say goodbye to pay respects um we just have had to adapt new ways to deal with those things i i just can't i'm still kind of in awe of everything that's happened this year and how disorienting all of that would be in an ordinary year but that now june is in your home and you have to shelter there. It. I don't even have a question. It's just more of a statement. It just seems so um, hard, I guess.
1: Scott, you have to, to realize, yeah. And, and June is just an example of what's going on across the country, is that when there's disruptions in family and family dynamics, that there's certainly challenges. And for June and Garland, who had, who had both been raised in in Paris and then went away to Midland for their careers and then came back to retire in Paris. They had incredible amount of connections in their church, and and basically all of Garland's siblings lived in that area. And uh, the the I guess it's just simply the ultimatum that one day you had to get in a car and leave all of that to come to a place even though it was with loved ones but it simply was not home uh, it was really challenging and part of the process also uh, was that we needed to sell her house and so um, fortunately the, the market in paris texas was very, very advantageous in the day that we listed it. We sold the house for a prize that was helpful. And uh, that really started closing that chapter of June's life to transition to live here with us. Uh, And there's another factor also that Harriet's brother, Ray and, and his wife, Suzanne, they live relatively close by. So at least there was some family that could come and pay attention to June. I can only imagine how many places, when we talk about the deaths, that have come across because of COVID-19.
0: At this point in the broadcast, I had a technical difficulty. And while I was getting it worked out, my father filled in, just like he'd been running his own podcast for a year. Totally amazing. Enjoy.
1: I know that I'm still alive on my end, and I know it's gone Maybe live on your end out there on the podcast, but uh, he's, he's had some technical problems today. So challenging. So, uh, I have no league to, to take over Scott's podcast other than say how proud as a father I am of a, a person that's pursuing this, this endeavor of keeping America informed of how important it is to be concerned and informed about this pandemic. So, um, there's a father's pride that has to be. I, I wrote an article for Scott's boys called Busting Buttons. <clears throat> and that's just simply natural for all of us that um, all of us parents out there have children. Scott and, and his siblings that we're so proud of all of them that we bust our buttons every time we talk about them. <clears throat> Scott, I lost you for a few minutes. I don't know if you were offline or so. I just took over. Well, sorry. <laughs> 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 tremendous it's great
0: no I I didn't want to tell you dad this is this whole thing is an audition for you to take over COVID calls uh, ready for you to uh, it's a family business uh, usually things pass father to son but we're gonna pass this son to father now um, I've been having some difficulties with the internet today and and I think we're but you're I'm back and you're back so let's keep going Um I want to turn to another. Um, I want to turn to another discussion point here, and just staying with the discussion of the elders. And if we, if I lose you again, we'll try to keep going. Um, you know, this, this problems this year with the nursing homes have been really, uh, I think, terrifying is the word that I would use. And. Um, You know, I have remarked upon this several times and and it's resonated with others who've shared the same feeling that people have felt worried. I have felt worried this year, even about family members who are not with us anymore. At many junctures throughout the year, I have felt concern for my grandparents, for uh, your parents it's such an uncanny thing. I don't even know how to explain it. Um, but.
1: i must step in again if Scott is working on his end to get us reconnected is that Scott had to witness his grandmother. My mother lived in a nursing home for eight years. And it worried Scott greatly that she was in that kind of a situation. Um, And I think that as long as nursing homes are basically for a for-profit type of organization, that we're going to be challenged always with the level of service, uh, the proper uh, funding for nursing homes. But the compassion of the families and some of those people who actually... Extend services in nursing homes um, has to overweigh the fact that frequently our loved ones in nursing homes um, don't get as much attention as they would get if they were living with us and um, so i know that when Scott would visit <clears throat> his nanny in Odessa it worried him and it bothered him quite a bit to see them in nursing homes I think that nursing homes could be an, an incubator <clears throat> for COVID-19 because they're just so close together. And unfortunately, the reason that most people are in nursing homes is because they're starting to suffer from dementia, Alzheimer's, or other advanced health issues. And they just, quite frankly, are more fragile and more susceptible to uh, the pandemic <clears throat> and to other viruses. And likewise, uh, their environment might not be as sanitized as if they were in a hospital. So, um, I think that that nursing homes has maybe gotten a bad rap. But quite frankly, for those of us who read the news, we see frequently where there's outbreaks in their nursing homes, and it saddens us to to see that. Um, so um scott may be that he wants to to speak to that later on i know that we're still live at least on my end and maybe he's working on his end so (laughs) i refuse to take over his podcast today as an aside while Scott's working behind the scenes that this is episode 195 of COVID calls and if you look back at <clears throat> all the people he's talked to it's just absolutely fascinating the number of people and the aspects that this is not just uh, an epidemic that touches only epidemiologists but it also touches historians and it touches families and it touches everyone and so Scott I was breaking down you again <clears throat> because COVID calls is
0: this has been the most un- this has been the most unconventional COVID calls uh, I just I've had and I'm glad it's on uh, I'm glad it's with you because you won't think less of me uh, or if you do you won't tell me um, for this technology breakdown we've had here today I'm trying to use my personal hotspot now and it might work and uh, but I wanted to. I'll I'll get the chance later to go back and see what you were saying, but um, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to continue um, just on this topic of of the elders and just hear a little bit more of your thinking. and And you were talking earlier about about polio and when you were a kid. What do you remember your parents talking about? Well, they were very young um, when the when the influenza, when the great influenza happened in 1918 to 1919. Too young to have memories of it, but they certainly remember the great depression and other epidemic disease in World War II. Do you remember them talking about hard times?
1: Scott, they, that was not a discussion topic. Um, and even in those ages when your papa and nanny were, were born and raised in the twenties and thirties. Um, they were hard times and there were hard scrabble times for them, but they've never talked about those kind of issues. So, um, I just don't think it was something that maybe it's just something that they accepted as that's part of life. And, um, as a historian, I know you would like to dig into that. Of why didn't they talk about it? They had to experience it, but it never was something that, that carried forward into our family discussion um, of there being, there were bad times, but it wasn't necessarily health related that was uh, getting so much attention.
0: Yeah. yeah, that the nursing home that, uh your mother was in. That nanny was in. Uh, Deering's nursing home. I've wanted to check in on them. It's not so easy to get information about individual nursing homes in Texas, or anywhere. I, I think. Um, I don't know. Have you Have you been thinking about what's going on out there and at Deering's?
1: I've thought about it, particularly since I know you have thought about it, and uh, my reflection. Um, Durian's for mother was that they had an extraordinary administrator David Bernard and David was a person who really cared for his his um, residence and uh, I've thought about several times Scott I, I know you know why Nanny was there basically because she had gone totally deaf and her sense of balance was gone her vestibular system was shot And Papa, whose health was okay, but he couldn't take care of her at home, so she went there to that nursing home. And um, her mind was very active. But um, I guess I would my thoughts now were, what would it be if my mother was there in that nursing home? And if that's the case, Scott, I'd be worried. I'd truly be worried. But I also would hope that that the vaccines will find their way to the nursing homes quickly and effectively uh, because they certainly need that attention.
0: You mentioned earlier the essay, and I wanna come back to that. You've been writing, uh, before the pandemic, you've been writing a series of essays for your children and grandchildren and they're really good, <laughs> you're a really good writer. And they're funny sometimes, and they're serious sometimes. And you wrote, I wanna quote the, from one of them, which you titled Home Alone, because there's something really interesting in it about your day-to-day life, which I really enjoyed reading. And I'm just gonna read part of this. And you talk about, you know, so you use the movie Home Alone as, the, as a reference point. But you said in this, you said, for me, this time of social distancing, masks and gloves and COVID-19 restrictions has presented some true challenges to my previously comfortable lifestyle. I so enjoy being in relationships and service with other people. My Monday morning breakfast with my trusted friend, Kerry Kennedy has been a tough detour, not having him in front of me to personally share thoughts, joys and concerns. My Tuesday morning Bible study with Kerry and four other men has been suspended. And you go on and you talk about really your week and the things that you do to stay active and the many different relationships that you keep going with friends. And so I wanted to ask you about that because you're also um, a person who has coped with a hearing disability for not your entire life, but for part of your adult life and into you know, these, these last decades that sense of isolation is very real to you. I know the concern about that. So it's impressive how much you do on a daily basis to keep connected with people. So having COVID disrupt that is something that has been worrisome for me and for everybody else in the family. And and to see you write about it in the essay was really powerful. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: The disruption of, of an ordinary life for someone who's older can be a little rougher than someone at your age who's more flexible because i was starting to get into a real nice groove uh, my Monday mornings with Carrie my Tuesday mornings with my Bible study group my Wednesdays at the volunteering at the carrying place at the food pantry my Thursdays with my cousin Don Stevens Fridays, frequently with my Odessa friends Ronnie Mons, Mickey Williams, Don Barlow, and Alan Kemp, and the afternoons playing golf. I didn't have much time to do anything else but to to do these activities. And all of a sudden, bang! Stop. You can't do it anymore. So you you adapt. So what we do, Carrie and I have a Monday morning call at eight thirty, and we talk and we continue to share with each other. Our Tuesday morning Bible study is now on Zoom and we're just going through struggling to understand the depth of Ecclesiastes and what was Solomon trying to, to teach us there and then on Wednesdays it's become a free day for me uh, Thursdays I'm still trying to get together with Don we social distance my cousin Don Stevens who's 81 and then the Odessa Friends, we Zoom. We get together on Zoom. So uh, there still is contact on almost everything. The carrying Place is an organization not unlike many others uh, in communities around America that basically takes in donations, and then they turn around at thrift stores and uh, food pantries and help the, the underserved and the people who need attention. It's just simply... Um, Way to love your neighbor, and that's that's. I miss that greatly. Not being able to do that, I think Scott, the biggest dis- disruption for for me and for Harriet is our church life. Um, you can worship personally, and you can worship quietly, and you can worship in your own home, but there's still something to be said about corporate worship, uh, going to a church and being with people that, that you really care for, seeing music, hearing sermons, mm-hmm. hearing the concerns of others. And out of an absolute, mm-hmm. uh, I think, sense of obligation to the members of our church who, many of whom are seniors, mm-hmm. is that we have discontinued having in-church service. And so our service is basically streamed, uh, mm-hmm. but you missed that. The collegiality of being with people who have a similar faith as yourself.
0: That, uh, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it, and the importance of keeping those relationships, and particularly in retirement, you know, I mean. In your work life, it was kind of interesting to introduce you with that professional biography because I just know you as my dad. And we all, that's how we know our parents. We don't think of our parents as being strapped with work responsibilities. And, you know, parents often hide those things. You certainly did do a good job hiding all the stresses you were under in your work life from us. But, you know, retirement should be for people a time to go back and tend to those relationships. And I wonder, I mean, have you felt a little bit ripped off this year by not being able to, ha- I mean, you should be able to enjoy that, that retirement and travel and see the grandchildren and go to the football games. I mean, You're not a guy who gets sort of up in arms about things. I'm not trying to provoke you, but I, I do, I wondered, I've wondered throughout the year if you haven't felt a, l- a little angry about that, a little frustrated about that.
1: I'm not angry, but I am frustrated <laughs> because um, we are a we are a close family and we do like to get together and, and thank goodness again for Zoom and FaceTime for us having these spontaneous get togethers of each other. But Harriet and I like to travel and I love Texas Longhorn football and that that went out the window. Um, maybe this season was good that I didn't have to go to the games, but uh, there's been just an adjustment. Scott, you know, you you think about people that are pre-retirement. In other words, you and your siblings and their spouses, and you have jobs. you got responsibilities. You've got to um, load the coal and, and earn your keep, and you're working out of discipline. And you likewise, raising a family. And so you've got these obligations and you wake up one day. And for my case, it was April the 1st, 2013, and I didn't have a job anymore. I was retired. And so this discipline of always having something to do and, and responsibilities all of a sudden is freed. And it's, it's a challenge to make that adaptation from working life to a retired life. And so you start finding these things that are very, very important. And so when this pandemic comes and kicks us in the knee, uh, it's challenged us back again because here we are, we don't have a job that we need to go to or do distance. Um, And so we have all this free time on our hands to say, what's next? what can i do um i can't go necessarily across town to sit down and have coffee with carrie and i miss that um and i can't go to a restaurant in austin to meet with all my odessa friends because we've been buddies since elementary school in odessa and we still get together as often as possible but i miss that don't have that so Yes, there are some things that are really frustrating. I don't know who I would get angry at. Uh, I just think that you have to adapt. Uh, in several of the essays I've written for for the boys, and I guess ultimately for all of the the, the kids, the, the, is that when life does throw those lemons at you, why don't you make some lemonade out of it? And I think they've probably gotten tired of hearing that homily. but. <clears throat> Truth is, it's it's, um, life is good, and God has given us so many benefits and blessings. And I just think that you have to find those those good things to to dwell on. And so the positive thing of COVID nineteen in the year twenty twenty is that where I was lagging slowly and. Uh, way behind on trying to write any of these presentations that you didn't tell the audience, but I started doing them because you requested that I do it. Um, in the year 2020, I wrote 15 of these, and I wouldn't have got that done at all if, if I hadn't had the time to sit down and really think about it. So, yeah, yeah. there there are positive things yeah, that yeah. that you can come, you can make this lemonade out all those lemons that are floating around us right now.
0: Now, you've been incredibly prolific this year. I mean, you've got, you've written practically a book, um, which I'm really glad about, and I wish I could say the same. (laughs) Uh, I, um, let me just change the subject for a second. Um, You and I don't always vote for the same candidate.
1: I've lost Scott. Scott and I'd like to talk politics and he and I don't come from the same side of the fence frequently on our views about politics, but we do agree that democracy is fabulous. And so it's wonderful. Okay. To-
0: I, think we, I think we're back again here. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Dad. I, I was just about to transition into a little bit of political discussion. Um,
1: I was telling the audience, and I don't know if I if if you lose me when you go off, or because I just keep talking. <laughs> but I'm um, just no, saying uh, that you and I would love to ahead. have political conversations, and frequently we're not on the same side of the, the fence, but we certainly uh, do agree that it's wonderful no. to have a discussion. And
0: usually not, and that's fine. And um, You know, I think modeling civil discourse is a good thing and it's important to do in a family and outside of a family too. Um, I do use the phrase very often when I talk about American politics, I talk about Steve Knowles' Republicans um, because I think there's a particular um, kind of traditional Republican Party ideology that in fact tomorrow you you can see it's the soul of the Republican party is up for grabs right now and that's going to play out in uh live tv on wednesday i think but i what i wanted to ask you about was this i mean you were in college in the 1960s and you were uh in that vietnam era and you've been attuned to civil rights struggles uh, in American history. And I know you in your own life, in your church, in your work, you're aware of racism, structures of racism. We've talked about those things. You know, with the death of George Floyd this year, that disaster and the pandemic have collided into something much bigger. And I've talked about that a lot on COVID calls. I guess I just wanted to, to hear your thinking a little bit about where you think this country is. And, and certainly I don't think anybody would believe it's sustainable that we would go on with this amount of tension in this country. But do you, what kind of hope, what kind of steps do you think we need to take? Can we get back to something that's a, a more sustainable democracy? Because I'm worried that we're not heading in the right direction, more than worried. I'm. Kind of convinced that we're not headed in the right direction right now.
1: I've troubled also, Scott, and you know that um, you're right in that I was a, a Vietnam era student at the University of Texas, and there was a tremendous amount of upheaval. And then um, I witnessed these election of nineteen sixty-eight. And there were just, and even in 72, where there was riots and it Kent state debacle and other things were, I think this country was out of hand at that point. And because there's such a depth of, of people in our country that we shouldn't give up, Scott, that, that there are people who do truly care about the the core of our culture. Uh, I'm not seeing it too much in leadership right now, Uh, but thank goodness the democratic process has played out and uh, I think that we're going to get past it. Uh, It's like a scab, Scott, a horrible scab that It's going to have to wear itself off before we can heal ourselves again. And I've written to the boys because I wanted them to understand that there has to be a sense of civility that returns to our country. And you'd be surprised how many people probably wish for that same thing. It's when they go to the polls and they have to vote for uh, one party versus the other party, and you really don't know if either one of them have the merit that earns your vote um so i think scott you may just have to be patient my son that uh the good just like the cream that that um, comes from the butter, is that the good is going to come back out of the country again we just need to basically exercise ourselves of current leadership on both sides, and let a new generation come in. The problem will be, and I think Scott, you, you're a historian. I think it started desperately uh, during the Bush-Gore uh, election, and then it just became more sized, and then became elements of both parties who wanted to be heard. And the the idea of compromise meant that you were giving up power. And so it just became uglier and uglier. And this year's election, uh, while it actually took away Mm -hmm. from um, some of our attention that should have been given to COVID-19 development of vaccines, and even more importantly, a, a development of a nationwide policy for how the vaccines would be distributed. And then you you throw in all of the horrors of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and other cultural problems that are systemic, um, we've got a mess. And uh, current leadership is not, I think the person that's going to heal us. I think it's going to be your generation, Scott, and your sibling's generation that has to come back in um, and maybe listen to some of us old gray hairs a little bit. But uh, I think that you have the intelligence now to understand that you've got to talk on both sides of the aisle. You've got to understand what other people, um, their points. Scott, when I was working, Um, in human resources, that meant that I had to represent the interest of our employees and their concerns and their hurts, their anger. And I had to balance that with the absolute authority of management and their role and their ownership. And so I always told people that I, I basically, my job was to sit on the fence and listen to both sides. The problem was that the fence was not like that concrete fence that Paw had. It was a barbed wire fence, and it was always uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But that's where I learned this idea of moderation, that you, there's, there's good on both sides. And I think that this sermon is basically to anyone who would simply say, I need to listen to what the other person has to say. Why did America erupt when George Floyd was killed? Why are people still upset about the fact that that um, there seems to be so much attention to professional athletes supporting Black Lives Matter? I don't know how much I understand it, but I've got to listen to it and I've got to learn from it. And I think that uh, that's what has to permeate uh, among this generation that's going to heal and put this, this country back. But it's a great experiment in democracy and i think that we're going to just have these hiccups we're going to have the the donald trump's of the world who um show up every every several decades and put him aside and scott we could go on for a long time on politics but um there's going to be people who are simply going to try to emulate him again, and it'll be a losing proposition. And we're going to have people on the other side of the aisle who are going to be challenged by far left, and they're going to have struggles. And so, where we come together is probably going to still have to be some event that's unknown.
0: Well, I think that I agree with your assessment in the main, uh, and and. I appreciate your, um, I particularly appreciate your emphasis on uh, passing the leadership, and you know, it's something we talked a lot about COVID calls this year, is how much we're learning from um, teenagers and, and, you know, younger people who are not accepting um, the realities that they've inherited, and of course that's what the way the system is supposed to work, is they're supposed to speak out and take action. I I want to, we're going to move towards conclusion here, Dad, and um, just remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls and a discussion between father and son to start the new year, uh, really just talking about um, what this year has been like uh, for for you, and um, I guess maybe we can just sort of close out, you could say a little bit about what you think is coming. Ahead, I know that you're eager to have the vaccine, particularly eager there to have the vaccine for June. Um, I'm hoping you're going to have access to it very soon. You think things are going to get back to some kind of normal for you this year?
1: Well, we're we're hoping that normal comes back, but I don't think we're we'll have the old normal. It's going to be a new normal, and once the vaccines come along and we think that we've finally have, have stemmed the tide of, of COVID-19 uh, and all of its deviants that seem to keep popping up, I think that we've learned possibly from this uh, this experience new ways to interact with family and friends that's not going to go away. And we'll look forward to get with them again, but it, it's there's no excuse now that we can still have all these these ways to communicate with each other um, but I think that that being a positive person that um, life is just going to be out there for us to take advantage of and for those who want to stay in their shells they can do it but they're missing a lot of excitement once we're back they're able to to interact with each other again so I'm positive for 2021. I'm positive for the leadership that's coming in. Uh, I have uh, concerns like you do about leadership in other places, but, you know, we just have to work through that, and that's a system that um, has mowed has us well, even though at times it gives us heartburn.
0: And there will be... Uh grandchildren visits and a new grandchild coming into the scene this year.
1: Yes, Adeline will be coming in April and we're so thrilled to have her join her other cousins and that will mean that that all five siblings have children and they all can then come and dote on mom, and uh, certainly, mimi that's harriet uh, mimi is is the one that loves to make them giggle and uh she's a fabulous grandmother and a good wife too
0: well i want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and uh you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m Eastern Time, tomorrow and the rest of the week, we're going to be talking about vaccines. Uh, We have a number of different guests who are experts in vaccines and vaccination. We're going to talk about policy. We're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about logistics. Tomorrow, we're going to start that with Jamie Ann Ernest, who's a senior researcher for assessment, monitoring, and evaluation at the U.S. Department of Defense Center for Global Health Engagement. So please do join me for that tomorrow at 5 p.m., Eastern time, and I just, I want to thank my dad, Steve Knowles, for this time today, for coping with my uh, couple of technological issues that we had here, I particularly appreciate you filling in um, when my technology quit on me, just seamless Knowles uh, discussion right through.
1: You taught me well, son.
0: I love <laughs> you, dad. I
1: love you, son.
0: All right. Check us out tomorrow, COVID calls. Stay healthy, everybody.